Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 30th, 2021, the last day of the month. Another month is gone. Four months of 2021, gone! Are you working on your freedom and liberty? Tick-tock, tick-tock, folks. The clock ticks for us all. Liberty and freedom are not a sliding scale. You are either moving toward them or you are moving away from them because if you do nothing, if you try to remain static, life pushes you backwards. You have to be proactive. Tick-tock, tick-tock. A good reminder, every once in a while we remind you of that. That clock is ticking against your dash. You only have so much time in this world to make a difference. Make it worth living, guys. Every single day, make it worth living. It's a gift. It's a gift. Today, it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it is time for the Expert Council Q&A. I've got a great show lined up for you today. This is 2869 of the Survival Podcast, and here's what we're going to have for you today. Um, there's a new workshop coming. It's free, it's online, and it's on demystifying cryptocurrency. It's being run by my good friend and fellow goose at Unloose the Goose, John Bush. And also, when I play that for you, I have a big announcement as well regarding John Bush. Ben Falk will be talking about growing climate-resilient plants. Jessica Mills will talk about getting used to sleeping in a tent in the wilderness alone. Yeah, it takes some getting used to if you've never done it before. Paul Wheaton will be telling us what rolly shelves are and why you should even care. It's pretty cool stuff. Chef Keith Snow, just in time for pepper season, will have an awesome use for poblano peppers. Uh, Keith actually sent me two segments. said pick whichever one you want to run this week, but this one's about poblano mole. And using it with fish. And I'm going to go fishing. And he sent it because maybe I could use it while I'm going to go fishing. I probably will. Uh, I am a big fan of the poblano pepper. And uh, I look forward to giving this recipe a try. When you hear it, you might as well. John Pugliano will talk about the housing bubble. Is it a housing bubble? What does the future hold? What's going on in the world of housing? I think it is a bubble. But maybe it's not a bubble everywhere. Uh, all of that and more in just a moment. Oh, wait. We're not done yet. Darby Simpson will be talking about all the valuable programs that you can access through NRCS. If you don't know what NRCS is, don't worry about it. Uh, he will tell you about that during his segment. And then I, my anchor segment, will be in relation to our quote of the day by no less than Leonardo da Vinci. I'll give you the quote now, and we'll talk about it in my anchor segment. Da Vinci said, There are three classes of people, those who see... Those who see when they are shown, those who do not see. Um, think about that as we go through today's episode. I have some really interesting observations on this for my anchor segment for you today. But with that, let's jump right on into it. I've got a big announcement here uh, after you hear the first announcement. John Bush is going to tell you about a way you can learn a hell of a lot more than you already do know about cryptocurrency, especially if you don't know nothing and why you should. Here we go. John, take it away. Hey friends, John Bush here from Live Free Now, Brave Botanicals, Unloose the Goose, and all that good stuff. Today I want to talk to you about cryptocurrency. I specifically want to invite you to take part in a cryptocurrency workshop I'm hosting along with two of my associates. It's called Demystifying Crypto, 
how to buy, hold, and multiply your cryptocurrency. And hold is spelled with the H-O-D-L. I'll tell you more about that. You know, if you're listening to the Survival Podcast, chances are you've heard about cryptocurrency. And either you are participating in the cryptocurrency space or perhaps it's a bit overwhelming, all of the information out there, you don't know where to start, this course is for you. It's geared towards beginners, folks that just got involved in crypto and are kind of perplexed at all of the just the wealth of stuff going on, folks that haven't got into crypto, and also people that have been in crypto for a while but want to learn some more advanced tips and strategies, or maybe start multiplying their cryptocurrency through decentralized finance. We are going to break down all that and more in the workshop, Demystifying Crypto, How to Buy, Hold, and Multiply Your Cryptocurrency. If you want to check out our landing page to learn more while I'm talking to you, you can go to CryptoAndPrivacy.com, CryptoAndPrivacy.com to learn more and get your tickets now. I've been involved in the cryptocurrency space for going on eight years now. And a whole lot has changed, you know. And in that time, I have learned a whole lot. I've made a whole lot of mistakes as well. One time, I sent 99 Ether, the token on the Ethereum network, I sent 99 Ether to another Ethereum address, but I left off the 0x at the beginning of it. And wouldn't you know it, that Ether went to the Ether. That was back after the Ethereum crowd sale, when you could buy Ethereum for 30 cents a piece. Now it's like $2,500. That's one of the mistakes that I've made that I've learned from. And now I got a great tip for you. If you're sending a Bitcoin transaction, whenever you copy that address, whether you're sending it to, from Coinbase to your own non-custodial wallet, or if, or if you're sending your address to someone so they can send you crypto or vice versa, whenever you copy that address, notate the first two and the last two letters or numbers, the first two, last two, write it down or just keep it in your head. Then when you copy it and paste it, when you paste it, you want to make sure that you pasted the whole thing because sometimes people think that they're copying the whole thing, but they leave some off. With some cryptocurrencies, some blockchains, it'll just bounce. Nothing will happen. Sometimes it'll go to the ether, like in my instance. So... Um, that's just one of the many tips that we're going to be providing for you. And like I said, this is good for beginners. So we are going to be breaking down the basics of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology, how it works, why it's valuable. There's still so many people that are like, hey, it's not backed by anything. Although, you know, the U.S. dollar is not backed by anything either. Well, how could this be valuable? It can be manipulated. This is crazy. The price fluctuates like crazy. How does the price even get derived? How do we come up with a price? We're going to break all all those mar mar market metrics down and really leave you with a firm base understanding of what cryptocurrency is, how it works, and why it's been exploding in popularity. We're going to talk about the basics of setting up a wallet safely and securely. We'll talk about a few different wallet options. I like Coinomi. We can break down the Jax wallet as well. Electrum is a great wallet also. And one of the important things we really want to hit on is moving your cryptocurrency away from a custodial wallet like Coinbase or PayPal, for example. These are great on-ramps for cryptocurrency, but being a custodial wallet, it means that a third party has access to your private keys. For every public address, which is kind of like your public-facing account number, Every public address has a corresponding private key, and whoever has access to that private key can control the cryptocurrency in that public address. 
So a lot of people buy the crypto on Coinbase, which has a nice user interface, much like PayPal. And then they feel a little bit nervous and insecure when they're starting to send it into the freedom world, right? With great freedom comes great responsibility. So the non-custodial wallets are definitely more secure and you actually have total control over the crypto. But there's definitely some things that you want to look out for to make sure you can protect that newly acquired cryptocurrency. And we're going to break down all the stuff. Like I said, I've been in the space for eight years now and I've really learned a lot. And I've made some mistakes, and I'm going to teach you how to back up, back up, back up, back up. Don't be like my girlfriend whose cell phone fell in a porta potty. She didn't scoop it out, and she had two Bitcoin on it. This was back when two Bitcoin was worth like $500. Had she backed it up properly, like myself, when my phone, like the screen breaks, I have a wallet on my phone, you just download the wallet, you put the recovery phrase. We're going to break all that stuff down. We're really going to dive deep when it comes to cryptocurrency privacy. That's definitely something that's important to me. I know it's important to Jack's audience as well. We're going to talk about how to acquire cryptocurrency privately. And then once you've acquired that cryptocurrency, how to send and receive the cryptocurrency in a way that obscures the sender and receiver. We're going to talk about that with some basic cryptocurrencies. We're also going to talk about privacy coins like Monero and Zcash. And you know we're not going to leave out old pirate chain. R, which is experiencing some explosive growth. So we're going to talk about that. We'll also talk about the Pirate Chain Wallet as well, which some of them can be a little bit confusing, but I've learned about it and experimented with them. So we'll be teaching you all that good, that good stuff as well. And we're going to teach you some good info, some some ideas to avoid getting scammed or hacked, and really to not only to teach you how to acquire the crypto, but how to protect it once you have it. And then we're going to take it a step further. So again, all that is great information for beginners and for folks that are already engaged in cryptocurrency and have a wallet and have bought and sold and maybe even sent some. This is going to be good for you too because we want to make sure that you're using best practices. So like I said, there's nothing that can get screwed up. A lot of people are worried about hacks taking place when in reality, the most likely way to screw up a cryptocurrency transaction is user error. So... I've made many of those errors, and I want to teach you how to avoid those errors so you don't make the mistakes that many have before you. But we're going to take it a bit deeper. We're going to dive deep. I invited my good friend Matt McKibben. He's with Decentranet. He's been around the cryptocurrency space for just as long as I have, if not longer. And he's going to dive deep on decentralized finance. So we're going to be talking about popular cryptocurrencies that you can stake and earn interest. We're going to talk about... Pancake swap and Uniswap and decentralized exchanges and taking your cryptocurrency and giving it to a liquidity pool and earning interest on that money. And even how you can get a cryptocurrency loan or how you can take your cryptocurrency and put it as collateral and get a loan. Really a lot of cool stuff that essentially is going to leave traditional finance in the dust. We're going to break all that stuff down. And if that wasn't enough, we threw in a bonus section. We invited my good friend Ramiro Romani. He is all into internet privacy and setting up your own decentralized servers, all this technology. He's the co-producer of The Greater Reset, and he's the person behind the Freedom Cells website. We've done a lot of upgrades in the past if, you, if you're part of the Freedom Cell network. We're going to do a whole module with him on internet privacy, specifically how to cover your tracks from old Zuckerberg, the Fuhrer of the internet, so he can't track you around, uh, talk about some alternative means of 
connecting to the internet, also VPN software, so your IP address cannot be revealed. And then we're going to break down some solid encrypted text messaging applications and encrypted email applications. It's going to be a lot of hands-on stuff, like I was saying. This is going to take place May 15th and the 16th from 12 to 4 p.m. Central Standard Time, May 15th and the 16th from 12 to 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can go to cryptoandprivacy.com to learn more. If you're not able to make those dates, we will make a replay available for you for the next 30 days. After the course, we're going to make a replay available for you so you can watch on your own time. Additionally, you can do a digital download of the workshop so you can have it for posterity. You can replay it. You can go back and revisit it down the road. Again, ladies and gentlemen, this is John Bush. I've been interested in cryptocurrency and involved in cryptocurrency for quite some time now, and I've learned a whole lot. I know that there's immense value in being involved with cryptocurrency, not only as a means of protecting and growing your wealth, but also as a subversive means of enabling human beings to engage in commerce anywhere in the globe without having to rely on a third party and without the government being able to do a damn thing about it. As a voluntarist, as a freedom lover, that is a very beautiful thing. And I want to teach you how to navigate this these treacherous waters because, like I said, it's changing. There's so much information I boiled down several objections why people don't want to get involved in cryptocurrency, and oftentimes it's because they don't understand it or they feel a little insecure. They don't know who to trust. They don't have anyone that can help them through it. So that is what me, myself, Matt McKibben, and Ramiro are here to do. We're here to help you get set up, help you advance your knowledge, advance the skills that you have in the cryptocurrency space, help you to buy it, help you to transfer it help you to hold on for dear life, whether the price is going up or down, teach you how to multiply it, and teach you how to engage with the World Wide Web, with the Internet, and maintain your privacy. Again, you can learn more at CryptoAndPrivacy.com. That's CryptoAndPrivacy.com. Thanks a lot, TSP listeners. Y'all take care. So let me just say, first of all, I am so glad John is doing this. I have been asked many times to create, like, a crypto tutorial, and that's what this is going to be. And even if you miss the live event, I'm sure he'll have it recorded. But I try to be there live. There's something about being live and being able to have discussions with others while it's going on, and they always have like live chat feeds and stuff when John does his stuff, um, and and being able to like as they go through multiple segments, uh, they do look at what's going on in chat and people sending in questions and stuff like that, and they do kind of adapt to it. And if you're there, you have the opportunity to be part of that input, and if you're not, you, you, you don't. So really try to be part of this, especially the. if I would say the less you know about crypto, the more important it is. Because, again, I've been asked, like, step by step, how do you set up a wallet? How do you, you know, what is a seed phrase? What is a seed phrase? What is a private key? Like, over and over, I've been asked this stuff, and I do my best to answer it. Um, but John has a way of taking that really technical stuff and bring it down to simplicity. I've always tried to do that as a teacher, but I do have a tech background. And I think that's actually bad here because I'm really good at breaking down into brass tacks how to build an aquaponics system. But when I start talking about technology, I tend to fall back into tech lingo, having worked in, in as basically a sales engineer uh, for a lot of my life and also helping to build uh, quite a few technical companies, like companies that did like 
AI-based analysis of cellular networks. Like when you when you have that in your background, it's hard sometimes to bring it into um, the everyday world for people that don't have the vocabulary that you don't even realize you're spouting some shit that you shouldn't be. John's real good about not doing that in this space. Now, this is the big announcement. I've asked John to come on board the expert council to answer questions about blockchain, Bitcoin, privacy, cryptocurrency, but not just that, like digital privacy. I've also asked him to be a resource for us on things like community organizing because he's very, very good at that with Freedom Cells and things, your questions on natural things like CBD, natural things like Kratom and other things like that because he has a huge background on that. He's an incredible asset. Um, I met him for the first time back at Liberty Forum in New Hampshire It had to have been around 2012, maybe it was 2011, and we kind of knew each other and of each other throughout that. I had him on the show a couple times, I did some things with him a couple times, but it was recently as we started working together with Unloose the Goose and then having him here at my place for four days, right, I gained an incredible new level of respect for the intellectualism, the knowledge base, and the commitment to liberty. I mean, I knew it was all there. But there's something about meeting people, you know, in real life and being able to see that, that, that there's, there's not a facade. Because I'm always skeptical of when I, when I know people mostly from online interactions, is that a facade? Is that the real person? That's the real person. And I am, I am incredibly grateful that he's agreed, uh, to be part of expert council. And it's, it's kind of like an official entry into the inner TSPC family. So John will be available to answer your questions. You can always send in expert council questions. You put TSPC expert in the subject line question in one word with a question mark. That's your question. Then give all the details you want. But if you can narrow your question down to a single sentence, two if you absolutely have to. Like, I have two questions, this and this. Okay, I'll let that go. All right, it's also related. And uh, then give all the details. It will make it so much easier for these people to help you, and you can now ask questions for John. Just on that note, I won't. I, don't, I think we're doing the first expert council show after this one is like May 17, because there won't be one next week, and then I'm gone for almost two weeks. And then, you know, even though I'm back that week, it's not until the Friday that we get back to it, just so you know if you send questions and you won't be getting an answer till till mid-May. Crazy, isn't it? But I need a damn vacation. I do. I really, really do, man. All right. Next up, Ben Falk on growing, growing climate resilient plants. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Just giving you some current thoughts. I don't have a question per se that I saw, but, um, one of the thoughts I've been having today and, and one of the, well, it's not a new realization at all, but it's um, it keeps crystallizing as I'm watching snow blowing sideways, and we're into about the fourth or fifth inch now, and it's almost May, which isn't unheard of here, but it's very uncommon, and it's especially uncommon when spring has been coming earlier and earlier most years in the last, well, for at least 10 years that I've seen it for 15. And when you talk to old timers, they say all uh, everyone around here says it's been happening for decades. People have been keeping track very well. Like when ice is out on ponds and when sugar season starts and ends, a lot of the old timers have them written on their walls, dates of first boil and last boil. So it's really good climate barometers and, and ways of measuring. Um, and, how to adapt to that, how to be resilient in the face of that, for whatever reason causes it. I mean, I don't really care about the reasons so much as uh, the fact that it's happening. I mean, personally, I've done a bunch of glacial climate change research, and I think 
people mining out millions of years of ancient carbon and putting into the thin biosphere probably does something but it doesn't really matter if you think that's true or not the situation seems to be that it's happening that climate is well of course it's happening climate's always shift and uh, we're in a time of more rapid shifting than in some periods of time in the past and how do we deal with that how do we be resilient in the face of that so uh, i've written a lot about that as some folks know um my book has some sections on it i've done presentations on it for years and years but um one of the things that's becoming ever more clear is that some plants are, are more resilient than others, of course, especially, and I'm saying this as I know it's snowing in Tennessee right now and southern Pennsylvania, well into Appalachia, well down, you know, pretty far south. And so a lot of you guys have flowers on your fruit trees and berry shrubs and nut trees. And so you're not going to have that food this year, um, neither with the wildlife and everyone else that depends on it. We're lucky in that we're far enough north that very little is woken up that much yet um, and in flower. Um, but hopefully, you know, we won't have a 20 degrees in mid-May. That can happen too. And then we lose all of our apples. Um, so one of the metrics beyond climate hardiness, which is very commonly known, the USDA hardiness zone, is how how quick to wake up plants are some plants wake up really slowly and some wake up quickly so the slower a plant is to um wake up like you know slow to waken might be a, a way to define that metric the better um so any plants like that score high on, on this type of metric black walnuts around here apples are kind of slow um, a lot of nut trees are pretty slow, hickories. And then generally the really hardy stuff from like zone two and three tends to be slow too and not get fooled by an early spring as easily. Although there are some, there are multiple exceptions to that. But generally if something's slow to wake up, I find it's pretty darn hardy um, here. And it's also resilient in the face of these kind of early springs and then we get winter and April. Um and so that's a big metric. And also compound leaf plants tend to be least resilient because they'll get fried from a late frost. I've seen that happen on ash, black walnut, and also notably hardy kiwi gets fried from frost sometimes. I've only seen that happen a few times in 20 years, but when that happens, you're not getting much off that plant and it also slows it down hardcore. They have to relief out and so they're not going to grow that much that year. Um, so just thinking on that front, you know, hardiness zone is important, but it's not the most important metric in a lot of ways for some plants for their resiliency in the face of a shifting climate um, and reliability. Um, how late to wake up a plant is is another big one. Um, and then, of course, how frost hardy are the flowers is another one. A lot of plants have very frost hardy at, or and many don't. Uh, flowers. So seaberry, for instance, hazelnut, you know, you can be like 25, 20, 18 degrees and, ha and be unaffected by the frost and still produce fruit. Apples, like, uh, you know, rose family plants, that's not the case. So, um, and then of course, there's many ways to, to plant, you know, north facing slopes could be more resilient and east facing because they don't warm up as quickly. They hold the snow longer. So you're not going to have those plants be kind of tricked into waking up before it's time. So just some more things to think about on the climate resiliency piece, which obviously is a big topic, but I think I'm going to include this, uh, this a second metric or two 
around plant selection in my book revision, which I'm trying to work on now for coming out in the fall or winter, second revision to my book. Um, another piece on that front, of course, is what's the most, what's the most resilient, climate resilient plants you can grow? Probably grass, right? Nothing beats it. I mean, if, if we have apples fail from year to year, pears failed last year because the apples had already set fruit and they survived the frost, kind of, but pears were fruit, flowering later and then got a frost. So they were in flower and, and we had no pears around here. And, but, um, all sorts of stuff fails from frost. But if you heard this plant was failing from late frost or from climate, except for drought, you'd be pretty shocked. Grass, right? There's just no, no failing grass, except again from drought. In New England, if the grass crop failed, you know, <laughs> it'd be Armageddon. And uh, I know out west and a lot of places where it's dry, the grass does fail after a while when the dry season comes in. But there's nothing more resilient in, in a lot of ways, especially in cool, wet climates than grass. Now, in arid climates, for sure, some trees, deep-rooting trees can be more resilient than grass. But around here, animal ag- grass-based agriculture ruminants, you're not going to beat the reliability of that. I mean, essentially cows and hay, get some wood stacked up for your wood stove, you're going to get by. Um, Not that it's not nice to, it's certainly nice to have some fruit and berries around too and nuts, but that's kind of gravy on top of some of that stuff. Good luck, everyone. Hope you're all well in all this crazy, increasingly crazy times on every front. And, uh, standing up for what's right with everything that's going down take care yeah i i i think we're heading into colder weather myself and i think it has a lot to do with you know giant macro uh cycles of the sun and we just had christian ice age farmer on to talk about the grand solar minimum and uh I, I I also agree with, with Ben, though. There will be climate shifts and fluctuations, and it's very possible that we'll have certain regions deal with more heat and dryness. Uh, some regions deal with more cold and, and dry. Some are going to deal with more heat and wet, and some are going to deal with more cold and wet uh, throughout the globe. It's a big-ass planet. I, I don't think people really appreciate how big the planet is. My My biggest concern for climate shift today because of man's activities versus climate shifts of the past is that we have cut down so much forest. We have denuded so much topsoil and we have damaged our ocean systems and our water systems so much with runoff that what we've lost, and I agree completely with Jeff Lott in this, is moderation. That despite major shifts in climate in the past, the forests and the oceans are the great moderators. And I, I think we've done immense damage there, regardless of the impact or lack of impact of, of CO2, which I think is minimal compared to everything else. But Dan's right. It doesn't matter. It matters the climate shifting. And I think we need to be thinking about the things he said in both directions. So I've always tried, you know, looking at climate hardiness, which he mentioned, if I'm in a zone Eight. I wanted. I want plants that can survive nine, and I want plants that can survive seven, minimum. That's kind of like at least the main architecture of what I'm building. I don't want something that's zone eight only that can't handle being a little warmer or a little cooler. I might put some of that stuff out there and, and put in some like you know 
moderation of my own with microclimates and see if it works. But in the end, like the mainstay of what I grow, I don't want it to be marginal. And then the other side of what he's talking about is like, you know, waking up, go to sleep. One way to look at it is just late and early varieties. If you have a plant that maybe wakes up, but it doesn't flower for an extra two or three weeks compared to other plants in that same species, then it's a later fruit setting, it's a later flower setting, so it's more resilient to being hit with a frost or a freeze. Um, I have to say that this year, that massive, huge freeze we have has exploded everything. Now, I got set back a bunch with my annuals this year. Uh, we had a late frost. It wasn't quite a freeze, but it was just enough to really knock some of it back. And just as it was getting better, uh, we just had a storm roll through that is typical for this time of year. Uh, but we got kind of the brunt of it. And I, I think we even had a very mild, like, F-Zero uh, tornado right through our backyard, basically. It was uh, kind of crazy. It didn't really damage anything major, but it did weird weird things and I've been through a lot of straight line winds in my time and what they look like is everything's blown in a direction this looks like somebody went through here with a giant weed eater on certain things and didn't touch other things like a bouncing light funnel cloud and then we had hail uh, that was really big so that knocked my annuals back it just so happens that it's a year where like my perennials are exploding and I've got plenty of time left it's like if this hit me in like June it would oh be so much worse. I got plenty of time left to, to get some things replanted and to you know, like rehab some things that made it. But uh, as much diversity as you can and planning for both directions. Don't believe anybody that tells you they know what the climate will be. I can tell you what I think it's most likely to be like 10 years from now. Colder. That's what I think. Doesn't mean it will be. And anybody that says they know, full of shit. Let's take another one. Have you ever thought about Really going out into the wilderness? I mean, really out into the wilderness? Maybe not a through-hike like Jessica Mills has done many now, including the Triple Crown in North America. She's hiked all three of the long trails in North America, the Pacific Rim, the Continental Divide, and the Appalachian Trail. Have you ever thought of you know, maybe even just doing a two- or three-day expedition on one of those trails or a trail like that where you do a section hike, maybe... 50 miles or something like that. Something where at some point you got to pull over, you got to set up for the evening, set up your tent, your hammock tent, whatever, and go to sleep. A lot of people camp. A lot of people have done that many times. But have you ever done it really, really in the woods and alone? It takes some getting used to. Somebody that's done that a lot has some thoughts on it. Of course, I give you Jessica Dixie Mills. Hey, TS Peers, Dixie here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land. Today I'm here to answer a question from Nicole. Her question is, how do you overcome the fear of sleeping in the woods alone when you first start backpacking? And that's a great question. I feel like a lot of people have a hang-up with backpacking for this exact reason. But pretty much like anything else that you're starting that's new to you, you just go slow. You can literally start with your backyard. And this will not only give you a chance to get used to the idea of sleeping in your tent alone, but 
It'll also get you more familiar with your gear while you have an opportunity to bail out in case something goes wrong. And so just literally go outside, set up your tent in your backyard, and hang out as long as you're comfortable. If you have to even start slower than spending the night the first time you try, you know, go out there and read a book. And once you get more and more familiar with the surrounding of your tent uh, and then knowing that you can just go inside at any point, uh, I think you'll find yourself quickly getting through that first baby step. And then you can graduate up to car camping. Have a fire, some s'mores at a local campground, etc. You know, en enjoy yourself there uh, for the camp out part during the day. And then at night, you just go to sleep and find comfort in knowing that you can drive off at any time if you decide that you're uncomfortable with the situation. And then, of course, the next step is to go in on a local trail, maybe a mile or less from your car. So park at the trailhead hike in and set everything up and go to sleep. And regardless of what happens, I mean, you can crawl out a mile if you have to, you know. Uh, so I think just not trying to eat the whole elephant at one time, taking it a little bite at a time is really the way to tackle anything like this. But also going kind of in these little graduated steps will help if you're slowly trying to build up your gear list. Maybe you're not 100% sure that backpacking is your thing. Uh, so all you would have to have to start off with is just the tent for, you know, at your house. I mean, you could use blankets you have at your house. So you don't have to have a big fancy sleeping bag or anything like that. Um, and then as you graduate to car camping, you can start acquiring some additional gear. And then, of course, when you make your first trip into the woods where you have everything on your back, uh, then by that point you'll you'll be ready for the situation. But the truth is once you're doing a lot of miles, you're eventually going to be too tired to care that you're in your tent alone at night. You're just going to be happy to be in your tent and get some rest. Uh, so if you're having a lot of anxiety at night still after you've built up to this point, then just hike more miles because Uh, once you're exhausted, you just don't have the energy to worry too much about that stuff. Um, but also doing things like listening to music as you fall asleep or some people like to sleep with earbuds. I don't like that because I do like to hear uh, what's going on around me at night, if there are any critters in the camp, etc. Um, but there, there are a lot of things that you can do to just kind of make yourself more comfortable. I mean, there have been times at night where I thought a mountain lion was outside my tent and I played music out loud for a while before I fell asleep, but there was nobody else around to care. So anyway, I hope that that helps and that I didn't start freaking people out there at the end talking about critters and camp and mountain lions. But anyway, uh, thank you for the question and y'all get some more into Jack for me and I'll be back. All right, next up. Paul Wheaton, Duke of Permaculture. Talking about permaculture? Well, not really. Well, sort of, kind of, maybe. Rolly shelves. What the hell's a rolly shelf? Where the hell's Paul Wheaton been, and why haven't we heard from him in so long? And why should you care about rolly shelves? Paul, help us out, man. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. 
Today, I'm here with Des. We're going to talk about rolly shelves, which... Rolly shelves. Rolly shelves. Which doesn't sound like a real permaculture thing, but it's such an amazingly powerful thing that we came up with that uh, it's like it's worth sharing. And so, uh, first of all, i got to say that we have a bunch of these now. We started off with uh, with three shelves that were 12 feet tall, 8 feet wide, and 4 feet deep. They were such a massive success that we then uh, put some, and those were in our main shop. Those are in our full-size shop, uh, which we use as a classroom and auditorium and things like that. Um, and then uh, we made three more for the garage that were eight feet tall. Uh, and we met, we set the width and depth to be equal to a twin-size mattress in case we ever needed that. And, and that whole idea came from the fact that uh, we had a, a series of events, and somebody just went and slept on one of the, the shelves down in the uh, auditorium uh, one night. It, I thought that was hilarious, but, you know, it, it totally worked. And and people were coveting <laughs> that kind of thing during this one event. And it's like, that's weird, but okay. I guess they like the idea of that more than tenting um, during that particular event. Um, and most recently, we uh, made two more that were eight feet tall, five feet wide, and two feet deep. And Des is going to talk about those. He was he was the the master of design behind those. And so we're going to get to those last. Um, first of all, with the great big ones, the twelve foot tall ones, uh, it's we've used it several times to split the shop into a classroom on one side and a small shop on the other side. So then the shelves have a back, and we just roll them into place. So then it looks like there's this giant wooden wall on one side of the classroom. And then on the other side, it's the open shelves, and then um, we can access all the stuff that we need off of those shelves. Um, so we've done that. And then the other thing is, is that uh, we... Almost always, whenever we have a class going on here, we roll uh, this one shelf, one rolly shelf over, one of the giant rolly shelves over to kind of be uh, a sidewall in the classroom. And on the back, we have a chalkboard and a huge flat screen. Um, all, all three of these jumbo rolly shelves, the ones that are 12 feet tall, uh, can be pushed together so it looks like a huge wooden box. And, uh, and, and so since they're all kind of pushed together into a corner so that you can't get to anything, it makes for a lot of space inside the shop. And so once in a while we need that. Um, and, uh, it's the same thing for the three in the garage. Uh, these things give us a lot of flexibility for our ever changing needs. And, uh, and it's been awesome. We can kind of store more in less space. So if we do the thing where all three of them are like a giant box, and then we just pull one out as needed. Um, it's like, wow, we have so much more real estate. Now, for the ones that Des made, then uh, we had a particular problem we were trying to solve. And that is that uh, during our classrooms, and so for the people that have seen the uh, the PDC and ATC video that we have, um, you can see that the instructor is standing in front of a bunch of shovels and stuff. And, uh, and it's all right, I guess. But we thought, how can we make this, like, nicer? So Des came up with the idea of doing the rolly shelf idea um, there. And then what we could do is, um, well, go ahead, Des. Tell us what the problem was and then what your solution was. The problem was that um, it was distracting to have a background full of 
like shovels and other hand tools um, behind whoever was speaking in the auditorium. And so we were trying to think of a way to cover it up as well as a way to um, make make a useful tool, which is the rolly shelf. Uh, the, I didn't come up with it personally by myself, but as a team we did. And uh, after it was built, it was built to fit right under the mezzanine so that it kind of just blends into the background. Um, and everybody likes it. It came out really great. Um, one of the cool things is one person can move it by themselves, um, whereas like the big rolly shelves, it takes about two to three people to move it sometimes. Um, it's a great way to hide the storage for when we have guests over or if we have presentation going on. Uh, it has a really beautiful uh, natural wood look to the back of the shelf. Uh, it keeps the area looking tidy and non-distracting. Um, one sp special kind of innovation that came about was that um, the shovel hangers are now removable, whereas b before the shovel hangers were just set in place and you couldn't remove them unless you removed all the tools as well as the whole rack. Um, so yeah, that's so we were kind of doing that. a thing that almost every homestead everywhere does where we would have like a place where you could hang like four shovels in a row. And, um, and that's, you know, we were, so we had tons of that kind of thing. And, um, but what, what you did was, is you made it so that the shelves, uh, when they're facing out, they actually hold more tools than what we were hanging on the walls before. Um, and it was a mishmash of a lot of different stuff. We were like, it needed uh, it needed something. So now we can hold more, and when the time comes, we can easily flip it around. Now I gotta say, for the big twelve footers, I've moved those around myself. There you go. Several times. There you go. Mm -hmm. But then again, I'm a little bit of a giant. I just like lean into it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, I think one person can do it if they try hard enough. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk for another hour and a half about these rolly shelves and how great they are and what a, a thing. And it's like not really a permaculture thing. It's just a clever thing. And it's been magnificent. So I just wanted to share. Uh, thanks, Jack. You know, my, my mind goes to instant entrepreneur mode. And, and in spite of all the cool things I could do with them, having shelves that people could sleep in like that in my shop, it makes me wonder, like, how much extra could I charge a person for that at one of my workshops? I'd, I'd probably just let them sleep in there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> with that, let's talk about cooking a little bit. Another guy we haven't heard from in a long time. I shook the tree, man, and they came flying out. Uh, is Chef Keith Snow talking about a use for poblano peppers. And in spite of being knocked back a little bit, many of my peppers are just fine. Aviary for the win, I would say, when the hail comes. Uh, pepper season is upon us. And I grow a lot of peppers. My best friend David, he calls me the Pepper Whisperer. I don't know if I earned that title for real or not, but I'll take it. And there's several peppers I like to grow. Marconi. Giant Marconi is one of my favorite sweet peppers. And Cuban L's. I love the Cuban L pepper. Good old-fashioned bell peppers, of course. Jalapenos. I am the jalapeno king. I think I do deserve that title. But one of my favorite peppers to grow, one of my favorite peppers to eat, one of my favorite peppers to have a... A balance of heat, but not so hot. Not quite up there with those jalapenos. It's the poblano pepper. 
the best pepper, in my opinion, to dry out and make your own chili powder. There's tons of things you can do with poblanos. They're my favorite pepper to dice up fine and throw into ceviche. Chef Keith Snow has yet another useful poblano, one I've never thought of, poblano mole. Take it away, Keith. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and Food Storage Feast. I wanted to share a recipe for poblano mole, and this is best served with a nice piece of freshly caught fish. And the idea is hopefully that Jack gets down to Florida and catches a nice fish, can grill it up and uh, serve it with this sauce, and also give everyone out there an idea on how to make something a little different. So, poblano mole. Getting started with this, you want to turn your oven on 375 degrees. You want to get a large uh, work bowl, and in it you're going to toss the following. Two poblano peppers. Those are um, not Anaheim's, not green bell peppers. Those are poblano peppers. They're a little wide near the stem, and they go down to a point, almost look like a little you know, Cinderella shoe. And by the way, this recipe will be posted um I'll give it to Jack. Hopefully he can throw it in the show notes. It'll also be over um, as the newest post at harvesteating.com for those of you that are driving or something like that. So two poblano peppers, toss them into the work bowl. One onion, peeled and quartered, tossed into the work bowl. Five whole garlic cloves. Then you're going to um, toss that with two tablespoons of olive oil and a good handful, well, pinch of kosher salt. Toss it together in a work bowl, put it on a sheet tray, and pop it in the 375-degree oven for 25 to 30 minutes. You should see some blackening happening on those vegetables. Um, They're definitely going to get soft. They're going to release a lot of juice. That's perfect. Once you see some good color, you can go in there with a tong, turn them over, and you're going to get a little charring on there. That's cool. After 25 to 30 minutes, take it out of the oven. Just let it sit on the sheet tray. Eventually, you're going to um, take the stem and some of the seeds out of the peppers. The whole thing will go into your Vitamix or high-speed blender, whatever type that is. And while those are roasting in the oven, you're going to take the pumpkin seeds and you're going to need uh, raw, untoasted, unsalted, completely raw pumpkin seeds. They should be green, a half cup of these things. Put them into a dry skillet over medium-high heat, and you cannot walk away because they'll burn and you'll have to start over. Just toss them. They'll start to pop after a few minutes, and they'll go from a flat to sort of a um, like a puffed up shape. Just keep tossing them. A teeny bit of color is all right, but you don't want them blackened. Then remove them from the heat, get them out of the skillet, put them on a plate, a sheet tray, whatever. You want those to com- cool completely. So once those have cooled completely and the poblano mixture has cooked and cooled, you're going to scrape everything into uh, the jar of your blender You're going to put the juice of one lime in there, a handful of cilantro, and all those ingredients, like I said, and you're going to add about one cup of water. You can use chicken broth if you'd like. You could put in a little cream if you like, but I would start out with just the water, um, and then you're going to blitz this thing on high until you have a very smooth, creamy-looking texture. At this point, you're going to want to taste it with a spoon and adjust the seasoning with salt and pepper as needed. Once you do that, your sauce is done. You can pour it into a sauce pot and then you proceed with the rest of your dish. Now, I like to serve poblano mole like this 
uh, in the summer with grilled or roasted fish is my um, preference. Even steamed fish is cool with this. But my favorite thing to do is grilled fish. So I'll take a nice fish fillet, season it up with olive oil, salt, and pepper, put it on a very clean, hot grill, and get some nice sear marks on it, and then take it off, and you have beautiful cooked fish. Now what I like to do is put this on a little bit of a a bed of buttered rice, not too much because I like to watch my carbs, but I still like a little bit of rice. Um, sometimes I'll make something called confetti rice, and that's a bunch of vegetables that are cooked with the rice. But I do use quite a bit of butter in the rice at the end. That way it is nice and luscious. So maybe you need a half a cup of rice on the bottom of your plate. I like to put that right in the middle. You can mold it or just carefully scoop it in the middle. Then I'll take the warmed up poblano mole, take a ladle and ladle that around the rice, and the grilled or baked or roasted, what have you, um, fish, even fried, heck, goes right on top of the rice, and maybe another squeeze of lime juice on top of the fish, and you're going to have a really incredible meal. Now, this sauce is super tasty. It's not all that spicy. Poblanos really aren't that hot. Could you use another pepper? Like... um, serrano or jalapeno sure could you add one of those to the mixture while you're roasting it sure that would give you a little more heat but i really like the flavor of poblanos and i've made this dish uh, with a little bit of heavy cream in it to make it a little uh i don't know richer but i also like it with just a water or even a little bit of chicken broth so do check that out poblano mole is a really interesting uh, Mexican-inspired sauce. It goes great with fish, particularly the kind that you can catch over in the Gulf. So with that, it's been Chef Keith Snow, and I want to encourage all of you to head on over to HarvestEating.com and check out our spices there. And I've got a new improved version of my grilled chicken. The long story was I couldn't get um, a couple of the ingredients, so I reformulated it and actually um, nailed it. It's it's even better, and what it does have in it is hatch green chili powder from New Mexico. It is really amazing, and, you know, it's great on fish, too. That's just a little behind-the-scenes secret. You don't need to use chicken only, um, but check that out. I also have my steakhouse blend in stock, and I do encourage all of you to check out my long-term storable cooking course over at foodstoragefeast.com. There's over 50 videos showing you how to cook with um, pretty cheap pantry foods and stretch out meals. So with that, I hope you all have a great weekend, and I hope uh, our uh, fearless leader Jack is enjoying his vacation. Take care out there in TSP land. We'll see you the next time. All right, next up, I've been getting a lot of questions about houses lately. Is it a good time to buy? Is it a good time to sell? If you sell, you might be able to make a lot of money, but then you got to buy something else to replace it with. What about building a house? Is the housing market in a bubble? Jack, help us out with real estate. Jack, real estate. Jack, I don't know. It's very hard to answer those kinds of questions because it's one thing to say, what's the general state of the market? But when somebody's asking you, do I spend... $500,000 $500,000 to build a house right now or wait for materials to go down. I'm like, I don't know. In the end, you got to make decisions like that for yourself. But with a more of a macro view here, I've, I've been asked just, is the damn thing really the bubble that we think it is? Is it sustainable? Will it hold? Will it pop? Will it blow up in some places and not others, et cetera? And I thought, you know what? I'm tired. I'm ready to go on vacation. 
I'm going to punt. <laughs> I punted this one to John. John, what's up with this housing bubble? Hello, TSP. Today I'm going to answer a question about whether or not we're in a housing bubble. If this is a 2008-2009 housing crisis that's about to happen. Before I get to that, I do need to correct some erroneous statements I made in my last segment a week ago. I had a question about receiving early Social Security benefits. Now, normally when I take those kind of questions, I make notes and I fact check what I was going to say. Last week, I happened to be out of town. And so I answered that question off the top of my head without drilling down to the normal research that I would do to answer a question when I'm in the office. As a result of that, I made some big blunders. And one of the most erroneous things I said was that when you collect Social Security, it's means tested and income tested against your total income earned meaning things like dividends and capital gains, and that's absolutely not true. The Social Security income test is based on actual earned income. So I totally got that wrong. I want to give a shout-out to Josh Scanlon for correcting me. And if you go over to the Survival Podcast, on the show notes for that episode, that's episode 2864, there's a comment in there from Josh. He corrects what I inaccurately said. And he goes on to add even more specific details about it. And I would encourage you to read that post. If you have any questions about early retirement or Social Security benefits, you can put a reply in there. I'm sure Josh would be more than happy to answer your question. I respect his opinions, and I would definitely defer to his expertise when it comes to things like Social Security. As always, when it comes to anything related to taxes, you want to talk to a competent tax professional and have them assess your personal situation. Now, on to today's question, which is from Cheryl, and she directed this to Jack. Jack kicked it over to me and asked if I wanted to comment on it. So here's Cheryl's question. Do you think there is a housing crash coming, like what we saw in 2008-2009? If so, when do you think it will begin, and do you think it will be better or worse than 2008-2009? Well, Cheryl... I'm hearing a lot of similar questions like you're asking. You know, a lot of people are concerned that we're in a housing or a real estate bubble. And in fact, a lot of people are worried about bubbles and everything. I mean, commodity prices, stock prices, cryptocurrency, just about any asset class is either setting new record highs on a weekly basis or they're certainly higher than they've been in the last 10 years or so when it comes to commodity prices. So are we in a huge bubble where everything's about to crash or are current prices just a result of normal economic and inflationary levels and they're going to remain where they're at? Well, one thing that's different about real estate compared to the other asset classes like stock prices and commodity prices, when it comes to real estate, a lot of the macroeconomic things don't really apply because it's a very local item. As the old saying goes, It's about location, location, location. In fact, a property on a different side of a street can have a total different valuation simply because of the attributes of that physical property. But having said that, there are still long and short-term trends that we can look at to help us determine where real estate prices are headed. And in particular, when you look at housing, what's happened over the short term, which would indicate that maybe we're not in a bubble, but we're definitely in inflated prices that are going to be pulling back once these short-term effects dry up. And as you can imagine, these short-term effects are all primarily driven by COVID. 
A huge short-term trend that has really pushed up the cost of housing is the rise in commodity prices. All the building materials are at or above 10-year highs. So whether you're talking about lumber, cement, copper, everything is at sky-high prices. And so these huge price increases in building materials not only affects the cost of new houses, but obviously that carries over to existing home prices as well. These are all short-term trends. I don't know when they'll let up, but we can assume that in the coming months, we will see mitigations of these type pricing pressures. And so in areas, uh, you know, suburban and rural that have been outside of these large major metropolitan areas where people have been fleeing the cities and fleeing COVID, I think you're going to see a moderation in single family home prices in those neighborhoods. And I want to flip over here and look at some of the long-term trends, which won't necessarily keep us from seeing a short-term decline in this bubble prices we've been in. But I think these long-term trends are an indicator that we won't see the drastic collapse in housing prices like we saw in 2008, and not in terms of residential real estate anyways. I think the office space, commercial real estate, brick-and-mortar type retail spaces, that's a different story. But when it comes to single-family homes, some long-term trends that I do see keeping prices at least stable are the fact that, number one, although prices have seemed to just skyrocket in the last 12 months or so, you have to remember that in most cases and most markets in the United States, prices have been stagnant for maybe 10 years. So while we have seen that huge increase recently, we're really just getting caught up to the price lag that's occurred since the last Great Recession. The other long-term trend that I see as a major factor in supporting house prices is the millennials. The millennials are now starting to form households. They're moving out of the small apartments and in the crowded cities. They want to go to suburban and rural areas. That's not a short-term trend. I think you're going to see that continuing for the next, you know, five or ten years. Also, when it comes to working from home, overall, because of technology, we will see more people that are location independent. And while the work from home movement won't be as strong as it was during all these COVID shutdowns, it is a long-term trend and that should help to support single family home real estate outside of the large cities. I'm running out of time here, but a couple other things I want to touch on are overall labor costs. I don't see those declining. That will continue to drive up housing prices. The regulatory burden that keeps Increasing things like building codes and zoning ordinance, that's a huge factor in driving up the price of a home. And then one of the biggest factors that I see for supporting single-family real estate prices, and particularly those in outlying areas, rural areas, and in vacation-type destination areas, is the impact of Airbnb. You know, in the old days, people would own a secondary home, a vacation, summer home, something like that, and it would sit vacant or dormant for much of the year. Well, now, because those things can be rented out so easily on Airbnb, and because the earning capacity of those properties are so high, it's really driven up real estate prices in those areas, and I think that's a long-term trend that's going to continue. So finally, to sum it all up, yes, I do think that in a lot of markets, Real estate prices are reaching their peak, and we will see some type of a pullback. But no, I don't think it'll be as drastic as we saw in the last recession and the housing crisis of 2008-2009. The real wild card with real estate pricing is the macro effect of interest rates, 
Low interest rates support much higher home prices because it makes the monthly mortgage payment so affordable. If we ever get into a situation where we see an abrupt up movement in interest rates, that'll be the event that has the largest impact on bringing down the housing market. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. So my short answer to that is we're gonna, there's going to be popping bubbles all over the place. There's going to be sustained markets all over the place. And there's going to be absolute desolation all over the place. It, it's all going to be very, very region-based driven. Um, I think one of the things I'm concerned about long-term is the effect of inflated property taxes. Back in 2008-2009, when, when the housing market exploded into destruction, this happened here, especially in the Dallas uh, area, within Dallas uh, area school district, uh, with the city and Dallas County as well, adjusted property values based on the run-up, and when the market corrected, refused, and I mean absolutely refused to acknowledge that this guy's house, you know, over here that would have appraised uh, two years ago at 400000 today would only appraise at like 300000 In fact, they continued to rot, raise the estimated property values and deny uh, petitions against those raises in the middle of a housing bust. And what happened? I saw more than one letter written to like Dallas Morning News, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, basically telling the city, the county, etc., choke on it. Choke on it, bitch. And people just literally threw their keys on the floor of their house, phoned at the bank, said, it's your problem, not mine, and walked away. And some of those people, in fact, a significant number of those people that wrote those letters said, I don't have a problem paying my mortgage. I have a problem p paying my tax bill on a house that's not worth anywhere near what they say it's worth. My concern for a lot of these places that should be okay, and I think it'll be spotty where it happens, is that's going to happen. There are these towns that I think they won the lottery now. And every government is bloated. Every government spends money it doesn't have. And so they're partying. Every time somebody moves into these little houses, older people are vacating and whatever, and people are selling them and fixing them up and flipping them. And these houses that used to sell for 180 are selling for like 280 320 in that range, and that's the kind of rise we're talking here. So as soon as you buy that house for that price, they have no trouble assessing property tax based on that value because you just paid that. It's impossible to even argue, right? I mean, I think the tax is theft anyway, but just think about, like, from a standpoint of this is the system we operate in, and, and I buy I bought this house, for instance, for $205,000. Well, the, next, the first tax bill that came in was based on that price. There's no way for me to go this house isn't worth 205. There's no way in hell I can do it. I just paid the price. So it just became the price. Well, you should hear what they think it is worth now. We did win our latest tax challenge. Well, we, we won part of it anyway. We did knock some of the bill down. But I've seen it. I've seen it in my own property. Ridiculous valuations. But it's driven by actual purchases. There's a breaking point. There's a breaking point where people go, I'm either going to sell to another sucker, but then you run out of suckers. You push it too high, you run out of suckers, and the person just says, and it's, it's more people than you think, I'm not doing this. And once it starts in a neighborhood, it's like cancer. 
I've seen it before. I think we're headed for it again. And I think there'll be places where it'll be largely insulated. And I would say, on that particular sector, the dumber your local governments are, the more likely it is to happen. And that's bad news, because I don't know many of them that aren't greedy and stupid. Generally, why people go into government. They want power and control over others. They don't want to work really hard, and they don't have much to offer the private sector. Those are the people making these decisions, and I think that adds up to bad things with current trends. Next up, Darby Simpson on not leaving money on the table if you're farming, because, boy, there's a lot of great programs available through NRCS. And I know a lot of people are like, it's the devil, it's Satan's money. Or whatever. It's your money, you're getting back, and it, when it comes to NRCS, if there is an organization in our government that largely does more good than bad, I'm going to tell you right now, it's NRCS. Darby... What can what can an RCS do for us? Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of Grass Fed Life back to answer another Ask Darby question that came in this week. And this time we have a question from John down in Tennessee. And John writes in, I'm a beginning cattle rancher here in Tennessee. I have infrastructure needs, including fencing and water, and will qualify for some NRCS programs for new farmers, as well as being a veteran in addition to this, John, thanks for your service. It all sounds good, but I am leery of taking government money and the strings that might be attached. Can you comment on the things I should be aware of when considering this assistance? John, yes, I can comment on uh, the NRCS and their programs because I have personally used them on my farm here in Indiana. And I understand your trepidation. Um, it does sound too good to be true. Free money from the government to help you realize your regenerative farming aspirations. Um, there's really not a whole lot to be scared of. Are there some things you need to be aware of? Yes, and I'll go through those for you. Uh, but do you need to be scared of this or uh, you know, leery in any way? No, not in my experience. Uh, so for those that don't know, NRCS stands for National Resource Conservation Service. They're a division of the USDA. Uh, and I, I would I would refer to them as like the redheaded stepchild uh, that is environmentally motivated, um, and they actually do a lot of really good things, and they have a lot of really good programs out there. Particularly if you're viewing things through the lens of regenerative agriculture, which is what grass fed life is all about. Uh, so you know what does the NRCS offer? Well, they will they will help uh, individuals establish effectively perennial grazing systems for ruminants. Now, what this means is that if you uh, have animals on your farm, and typically they want you to have the animals on your farm before you'll qualify, that can vary by region. In my region, you have to have the animals here first. Uh, if you have grazing ruminants, meaning cattle, sheep, goats, things of that nature, then there are some programs where they, they can help you um, with pasture plantings, overseeding, fencing, buried water, heavy use pads uh, for, for you know feeding hay or watering in the winter or whatever uh, that you might qualify for. And these are grants. So let's talk about uh, you know some of the speci uh, speci specifics here um, that you know can be required again. Regionally things can change. 
Okay. For instance, in my region, they uh, they used to offer money for external fencing. They no longer offer money for external fencing. But I know in other regions, the NRCS is still offering that. So you have to have a conversation with someone in your local NRCS office, and you'll have an office that is assigned to cover your county, regardless of where you live, and just ask them what programs they have. Uh, you would probably you know, have them out to your farm, have a conversation about what your goals are, what you're trying to accomplish, uh, and then they'll kind of pour that through a filter and see what programs they have available in your region and kind of put together a plan for you. And then you can choose to you know, move forward, apply for uh, uh, the grants listed in this plan or not. Now, it is not a quick process. It can often take 12 to 18 months to to hear back that hey you, you you've been you've been funded. Uh, there have been times where it's been longer than that for me, and in some instances I went ahead and just did the work uh, and didn't wait on the grant to come through because I needed to get it done. And and that's one one caveat you need to be aware of. You can't go do a bunch of stuff and then apply for it and think you're going to get paid. It doesn't work that way. You have to get approved first. Uh, something else you need to be aware of is that if you do move forward with this and you accept this contract, uh, it is just that. It's a contract, and there are things you have to abide by. For instance, when they tell you you have to install something in a specific manner, you got to follow the rules. They'll come out and inspect it once the work's done, and if it wasn't installed per their specifications, you're not going to get reimbursed. Uh, something else, you have got to be able to cash flow these improvements out of your own pocket on the front end. They don't just hand you a pile of money. If you say, for instance, get um, you know uh, $5,000 to put up uh, external fence, well, you've got to cash flow that on the front end, get it built, and then they'll come out, sign off on it, and then you'll get reimbursed. Again, this can be a slower process. The reimbursement process, in my experience, isn't terrible, but it's something to be aware of that, you know, it's not super quick. <laughs> From the time they come out, sign off on it uh, until you get the money, it could, it could be a couple of months, you know, even after you get the work done. So make sure you've got the cash to put into this that you can live without for an extended period of time. Um, again, it's a contract. So if you default on the contract, if you sign the contract, and then you don't follow through within the time specified, there are penalties, specifically 10% of whatever the grant money was. So if you had qualified for that $5,000 in fence and then you don't do it you know, by the end date of the contract, you're going to owe the federal government 500 bucks. You sign the contract, it's legally binding. Um, you know, beyond that... There's really not a whole uh, host of things you need to be worried about. One other thing I will mention is that while this is a grant, it does come with a 1099. And that means if we'll use our $5,000 example, uh, they say, hey, we'll pay uh, up to X dollars per foot for this fence. That equates to $5,000. You install it for $4,000. That's fine. You'll still get the five grand. But when it comes time to do your taxes, you've got to turn in that $5,000.1099 and then show $4,000 in expenses. Yes, you'll get taxed on the $1,000. That is something to think about. Most of the time, they try and um, provide funding so that it's going to cover all of your costs. In my 
experience, a lot of the time it is break even. It might even cost you more, a little bit more than what they estimate. But there have been times where I've come out ahead a little bit. Uh, some additional programs you can actually get money for doing rotational grazing, overseeding existing pastures, again buried water systems, drinking stations. There's just a whole host of things that you can apply for. You may or may not get it. You might get some of it, not get all of it. Um, but I tell you, I, I have found it really helpful, and I have found most of the people inside the NRCS to like genuinely care. That's been my experience. I know others have had different experiences. As with anything, it boils down to the person you're working with at the NRCS and, you know, how motivated they are to do their job well. Um, fortunately, we've, we've got a pretty solid group of people that we work with here locally. So, again, John, uh, nothing real nefarious here. There's not really any strings attached. Um, the only other thing I'll mention is... Uh, anything you do, typically the contract states you have to keep it that way for at least 12 months. For instance, we gave you money to establish a hay field. That's something else I didn't mention earlier. You've got to make hay off of that for at least 12 months. If you then turn right around and rip it out, that's a breach of contract. There are penalties. You have to give the money back plus a penalty. So those are really the only things to be concerned about, I guess. Really more aware of. I think your NRCS agent is going to walk you through all that. It's not like there's some, uh, you know, clause in there where, hey, we're going to take all your land and throw you in jail um, and seize your bank accounts if you don't drill in that clover the way we wanted you to drill in the clover. So nothing too scary. Uh, we do have at Grass-Fed Life uh, actually some uh, uh, courses on this very thing. A guy named Kelly Bush out of Kentucky has done some presentations for us. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. Kelly was a master at getting grants uh, through the NRCS and actually through some other programs that he talks a lot about. So I'd encourage you to check those out in the podcast. As always, everyone, thank you for sending these questions in. Keep them coming. I'm always happy to answer them. And as always, check out the resources we have at Grassfed Life. There are free courses out there, and there are all kinds of paid-for courses. Uh, things I'll highlight this time of year. An inexpensive $39 do-it-yourself pastured poultry course and pastured pig course if you just want a homestead. Also, chicken tractor plants for 20 bucks. Everything you need to build them right and build them right the first time. That's important when materials are super expensive. As always, thanks again. Enjoy these questions. Everyone have a wonderful week and take care. All right, with that, I want to take my, my my moment here to do the anchor segment today and I am making some structural changes to the show and one of those structural changes and, and there'll be more of this when I get back from vacation is on my expert counsel shows to make my life a little easier with the sheer volume of content I produce every week I'm moving the uh, quote of the day to the end and that will be my segment on each Friday so I'll you know, maybe go a little bit more with the quote of the day than I do the other uh, days of the week. But Leonardo da Vinci wrote, There are three classes of people, those who see, those who see when they are shown, and those who do not see. And I want to take a moment here to help you recognize a pattern. I, I call it the pattern of threes. I'm probably not the only person 
that's talked about this or has recognized this, I would, I would highly doubt that would be the case. But what I mean by the pattern of threes is if you ever, if you write, specifically if you write marketing pieces, you'll tend to speak in threes, red, green, and blue. And there's something about the human mind that is drawn to the pattern of threes. And somebody that would know something about patterns and numbers would be Da Vinci. Okay. And I think that almost everything can be broken down at the macro level into pattern of three. And I don't know if maybe that's because this specific observation is so accurate that people break in to patterns of three. How universal is this pattern? This, of course, is talking about the overall ability to see the truth is what da Vinci is talking about here. To see and understand reality. How divorced from that is sales training? I think it's pretty divorced. I, I think that like sales training and that are totally different worlds. You're talking about one of the most brilliant minds in the world discussing one of the most brilliant observations of humanity that's probably ever been made. And you're talking about, hey, here's how to, here's how to up your sales numbers. Pretty divorced. But the pattern of three holds. One thing I used to teach in, in my sales training that I would do with my people, and, and many sales programs teach the exact same thing. It's not my thing. It's a thing. That there's three types of sales. Or three types of, I should say, prospects. You have the leads that are going to convert into sales, even if you do your job poorly. About a third of all the, the, the contacts that you're able to come into contact with as a salesperson are going to buy. They, they're, you, you might even actually be in their way. You might actually not be necessary. They're so ready to buy. The only reason they're dealing with you is because in your position they have to. If there was a button they could push and just buy the thing, and that could be anything from something really low-end like a widget all the way up to a multi-million dollar data center and anything in between, there are people that, I just need this, I've already made my decision, I already know what your company does, I don't want your shit, Get, here's my PO, I want to buy. That's a third of your business. And that's why you don't get pat on the back for every sale. Then there's a third of the people that you're going to come into contact with, they are not going to buy from you. They don't have the means or they don't like you or they don't like your company or they're, they are willfully ignorant to the solution. I, there's a, there's a hundred reasons, but they are the unwinnable. You can not win with them. They will not buy your product. They're not going to. They will buy from your competitor to spite you if they charge, if they're charging more sometimes, right? There's lots of reasons, but that third of your contact base will not buy from you. And then there's the middle. There's another third. You may or may not get their business, but it's possible. It's possible. So when you're dealing with people in the sales process, you need to very quickly sort them. This person's a buyer. Let me get through all the bullshit and get them what they need so they can buy. This person's never going to buy. Let's throw one shot at it and see if I can flip that. If I'm, Let's go to a test to see if I'm wrong. Right, And if I'm wrong, then I'm going to move them into Category 2. But if I'm right, next, I'm done. I cannot waste time on people that are not going to buy, and I should not waste time on people who are just trying to buy. As a salesperson, if my job is to convert you from interested to customer, the majority of my time needs to be spent with people in that Category 2. 
that can be won over. And though that rule of threes is absolutely 100% how you take a salesperson who's not doing really well, you train them in that rule of threes, and if they have product knowledge and they don't suck, if they're not just totally useless as a salesperson, you can take a person that's lackluster and you can turn them into a rock star with just that rule of threes. How many rule of threes are there in the world? I think it's, I think it's limitless. I think it's, I think three is a sacred number. And not just because of the religious connotations. If we look at sacred math and sacred geometry, like threes come over and over and over again in them. The human mind works, like I said, in threes. If you give a person two choices, they feel trapped. In or out. Right? Warm and cold. They're always looking for more, even if one of those is the right choice. You give the human mind four or more choices, they become confused. It's too much. You give them three, they feel like they have enough choices to be able to actually have freedom in their decision-making and enough clarity to make a good decision. That's another rule of threes. We can divide things into thirds and halves in our mind almost instantaneously. And we can even go into quarters. After that, it gets complicated. Look at anything on your desk or table and see the center line. The center line's easy. The quarter lines are easier because they're half of the center line. Try to do it in fives. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to do it in fives. But you can do it in thirds just as quick because the human mind works along the rule of threes. It's not the only rule, but it's a rule in the human mind, the rule of threes. The reason I spent that much time explaining that before I go into the quote itself is so that you understand that this is, this is an immutable law of reality. When da Vinci says there's three classes of people, those who see, those who see when they are shown, and those who do not see, it is not debatable. That's pretty much the only three categories that people can be put into when it comes to understanding a great truth or seeing a reality. There are people who immediately see it. You don't have to explain it to them. You've seen it, you talk to them, and you go, I'm talking to somebody that sees what I see. There are people who are open to something. Well, I, I don't see it. Can you explain it to me? And when you do explain it, if assuming that you're right and your evidence is credible, it's like scales are washed off of their eyes and they go, oh, I see. And then there are people that even the great Da Vinci could draw the picture for them and they cannot see it. They will not see it. They are not capable of seeing it. Now, the good news. People can change their class in this system, in this rule of threes. They can move. Those who do not see can figure out what is causing their blindness open themselves to new possibilities and become the second class of people. They can do it. They seldom do, but it can be done. What cannot happen is, if you are in the other two, either of the other two classes, one who sees or one who sees when shown, you cannot red pill that person, as we say in common vernacular. You cannot make them become someone who sees when shown, and you cannot make them one who just sees. You can't do it. 
They must decide for themselves. They must start to realize that everything that they've been programmed to believe is not necessarily true. Some things you're programmed to believe are true. If everything you were programmed to believe was fake, you'd become one who sees for yourself far more quickly. It is best to sell a lie with two truths, another rule of threes. If I want to sell you a lie, I will use two true things to convince you of the lie. If I give you four true things to convince you of the lie, it seems like I'm overcompensating. But two true things to convince you of the lie, it balances rule of threes. So you can move from this. And by being one who can see when shown for long enough and being open, you can become one who sees without being shown. Leonardo da Vinci, if you don't like it, dig him up and argue with him. He's a hell of a lot smarter guy than I'll ever be. <laughs> with that, we've wrapped things up with another episode of the show. I want to remind you, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I'll keep the item of the day short today because it's the same one as yesterday. Uh, I decided to just run uh, it again today. That's the... Uh, The new uh, knife that I've, I've started carrying myself by Outdoor Edge, it is the Outdoor Edge Razor Light EDC. Again, I, I talked about it a lot yesterday, so I won't say much today. It's just an awesome knife. Just go to the website, either tspaz.com or the survivalpodcast.com. Scroll down, you'll find it. Um, it is a fantastic little knife. I did have somebody ask, a couple of different people ask me, what's the difference between a 3-inch and a 3.5-inch one? Uh, one's a half inch longer than the other. I thought I was clear on this, but the, the three inch version uses a smaller insert blade. And the reason I didn't even think about ordering it is because I have other frames that, that I have three and a half inch blades for, and I didn't want to add a third blade size. If you wanted a more comp compact one, I can't say anything wrong with it. I would say, you know, unless you're a really small person, I, I don't know that the three and a half would be larger than most people would want. I think it would fit in the average pocket just fine, etc. It, it carries really, really nice. And I, I think actually being a little shorter for someone with full-size hands, you would lose some of the the workability of the knife and the functionality. So I, I'd recommend sticking with a 3.5. But quite a few of you bought the 3-inch one too. So if anybody that did, I'd love to hear from you. Maybe even do a little video and send it over to me and we can share it with the audience. Uh, if you want to, especially if you've got both, that would be kind of cool too. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. It is Bob Seeger week. Um, I did stick with Bob Seeger week, which John Adam, our music director, uh, selected all the songs for this week, but I did call an audible for Friday. I am sticking with Bob, but I am going to a different song and a, a much more current song, uh, than a lot of Bob's work and the stuff we've played. Uh, this week, you know, a lot of Bob's music came from the 70s and early 80s. Um, this is called The Fire Inside, and I believe it came from around the like late 90s, early 2000s in there, somewhere in that range, uh, when this song was released. And I decided to release this today because it kind of hits a theme that I've been hitting on with my Miyagi Mornings episode today, on some of the stuff that we touched on with the Da Vinci quote. In, in my mind, right, with me taking a different view of the meaning of this song than the actual meaning of this song. The song's about basically having someone that you want so bad and you're trying to find them and being out in, you know, kind of the night scene and seeing all of the fakery going on and just wanting that one real person back and that fire inside being anger at not having the thing that you remember so well that you can still feel like it's there. 
And I, I've always understood that about this song, but this is one of those songs that when I hear the fire inside, I don't think about anger. I think about the reason I do what I do. I think about being a young, hungry, 21-year-old Jack Spirico sleeping in the back of his truck, traveling, learning the communications field, and, and living like I was poor as shit so that I actually had enough money to make it worth traveling and going, I'm, I'm going to do something with my life. I'm going to be something in my life. I think about the guy that had made it in the corporate world, totally made it, was making great income and decided, I don't like this anymore. I started doing a podcast in his car on the way to work and on the way home because there was a fire within me. Not a fire of anger and rage, but a fire to be something. And there's a line in this song where he says, we can't be denied the fire inside. We can't be denied. Well, I think that we get to make a choice on fire. There was a lot of things in my life that weren't so great as a kid. A lot. I still don't have jack shit for a relationship with my parents. And frankly, I'm at a point in my life where I don't see the point in trying to have one. When you grow up that way, there's a fire in there that is anger. But it's your choice. Do you swallow that anger? And are you driven by anger? Or do you let the fire burn to the point of motivation? Do you let the fire burn to the point where I will figure out what I want and I will make that a reality? The fire will be there. But you choose where, how, and at what temperature it burns. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's a hard moon rising on the streets tonight. There's a reckless feeling in your heart as you head out tonight. Through the concrete canyons to the midtown lights where the latest neon promises are. Thank you.
eyes as the lights flash on. They all want another just a little too long. And they move apart and then move on. On to the street, on to the next. Safe in the knowledge that they try. Making a smile, hiding the pain, never satisfied. The fire inside. Fire And you listen to him leave like he knew he would. Here is car pull away in the street. Then you move to the door and you lock it when he's gone for good. Then you walk to the window and stare at the moon. Riding high and lonesome through a starlit sky. How it all slips away Youth and beauty are gone one day No matter what you dream or feel or say It ends in dust and disarray Like wind on the plains Sand through the glass Waves rolling in with the tide Dreams die 